Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome, welcome, folks, to Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach. Back in the saddle with our producer and co-host, Chris Morales, 646-564-9909. 646-564-9909 is the number, and we will get to his uh, his return in a little bit. If you want to call him to speak to us, that is the number. If you just want to listen to the show, you can go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Again, that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio if you want to listen to the show live. Or you can listen on the call-in line if that's your only uh, means. you got to make it happen. Make it happen. Welcome back, sir. Well, thank you. It feels good to be back. Uh Enough flying and traveling over this past two weeks for a solid year for me. Yes, I heard there's been some aviation uh, escapades. There were indeed some some aviation uh, escapades, as you put. Uh, not the biggest fan of flying, for those of you out there who don't know. And so the more I fly, I'm beginning to realize I'm probably going to experience some more things in flying that may happen that frequent flyers have already experienced and think nothing of. But yes, our uh, our flight black, back, my wife and I uh, had gone out to Colorado for, for a family emergency. We had a, a relative out there, um, a physical kind of emergency, who is recovering well and going to be flown back to the Bay Area probably today, which we're happy about. But anyway, she, uh, we were in an airport in the middle of Colorado, very small airport, and our flight was supposed to leave bright and early, 7.30 a.m. I think we were there at 6.30, and uh, we were told the flight was going to be delayed by about 10 or 15 minutes because the pilot had requested some oil for the left engine. Minor delay. <laughs> Minor delay, which uh, turned into about five hours. But I can tell you, I've never... Couldn't w- find the dipstick. <laughs> I've never witnessed 
a very small, intimate airport, so you can see from the gate right outside at your plane and what's going on. And they had a mechanic opening up panels on the engine that I didn't even know existed, and uh, a box of tools and a ladder. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness! And they pull after he does about two hours of work. They pull the jet out onto the the runway, so we're thinking they're so going to... By the way, I'm, I'm going to interject here. Sure, going, yeah. This is similar to pulling your car out of the driveway after you finish working on it to test it out and see <laughs> if you got everything bolted, that bolted back together. Go on. Right, exactly. So they pull it out onto the runway, and we're thinking, okay, good. They're going to test it to make sure everything is in place, and they reverse it out into the runway, and then it sits, and then we see the little steps by the pilots thing come down and the two pilots walk out and they're hollering for the mechanic. And so he comes out and he's going back to work and now they're in the middle of the runway and he's doing work. And I'm like, whatever they did didn't work the first time. And didn't he have like a Toys R Us toolbox it or was, something? It, yeah, it was like one of the forty nine ninety nine Target specials you get for dad on a Christmas. And so they finally, he closes it up and they pull it back into where he was working on it to begin with, where he went on to work on it for another couple hours, and then they loaded us up into the plane, at which point I think everybody sitting in that little terminal at the airport was hoping they were going to send a, maybe a replacement jet for us. <laughs> I guess that may not happen in traveling. And so as we're sitting in the plane, the captain apologizes for the delay and says it was nothing more than just being thorough and checking to make sure the engine had enough oil because the gauge was telling them otherwise. Which then, you know, I'm thinking, okay, great. So we're going to take this flight with some broken gauges. <laughs> That's what's happening now. Uh, but we did make it back safely, thank goodness. Uh, but that was like something I had never experienced. Well, you know, flying is uh, not for the meek. It will test your metal. Um, so other than that, uh, no turbulence, no... Uh, no landing in fog at SFO. Came in when yesterday. Came in yesterday. It was a nice clear day. Pretty clear. clear. Clear day. There was there was a good amount of turbulence into and out of Colorado mm -hmm. from into Phoenix because uh, we're on a little plane. And you're in around the Rockies, aren't you? Yeah, kind of. I think mm -hmm. the Rockies are a little more east, but still mountain ranges yeah. um, that are still covered in snow mm -hmm. even at this time of year. And so obviously mountain ranges plus little 48-passenger plane, mm -hmm. you know, you could probably feel the crowd roar above Rocky Stadium in a little plane like that if they were roaring loud enough. So so there was a good amount of turbulence. The wife, um, I think at this point, is number one in the family as far as fear is concerned when mm -hmm. turbulence strikes. I mm -hmm. think I used to hold that uh, throne, but she has overpassed me now. Mm -hmm. uh, but then into Phoenix and from Phoenix to SFO pretty pretty smooth but we were on a bigger plane okay so good stuff um i'm sure you're aware or maybe this happened uh did you get home in time to watch the game the warrior game yeah yeah uh, okay so i'm i'm sure you heard on the news when uh Curry went down on that fall, and and how there were a lot of people lining up on the bridge, and you know, and, and, ready to jump, ready to you know <laughs> just give up, and you know whatnot. Yes. And then he made his Willis Reed like uh, reappearance, and <laughs> that's right. And 
they pull back all of the emergency supply of uh, Prozac and That's all right. that stuff that you guys usually keep here in the Bay keep Area in stock. when your teams uh, don't do well. That's right. But um, for the for the sake of uh, competition, we're glad he's uh, he's okay. Even though I'm sure today he does have a sore neck. Yeah. Uh, shoulder, back, and head, but uh, he should be ready to rock and roll tomorrow. Well, I can tell me, I can tell you, it said something to me about the Houston fans when he was able to get up. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's a very dramatic scene to watch, but the reason they keep him down, face down, for as long as they do, is because that's the position he was in. They just don't want him to move while they check stuff out. Mm-hmm. So it's not like he's laying there face down because he's incapable of getting up mm-hmm. several minutes earlier. They're telling him, don't move. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when he finally got up and was being helped off the court, you know, there was a, a round of applause. Mm-hmm. Quite different than, and I don't know if you're aware of this, what happened in Seattle when Navarro Bowman broke his leg in the championship game and was carted off the field, was met by some beer cups and popcorn being thrown down at his cart as he's being carted into the tunnel. Well, that is football. <laughs> yeah, a true, bit. a different type of fan, too. Yeah. Um, a little but, bit different. But, yeah, so, anyway, like you said, competition-wise, glad he's back. Airplane-wise, you know, I'd like to share with the audience as well as the host here because he's an airplane lover of sorts, and uh, he enjoys the stories. Yep. Now, I have to ask... Have you ever experienced something similar where they've got the engine open and working on the plane you're about to fly on right in front of you? Um, no, I've never been that unfortunate to because uh, it's very rare that I go into a small hub like that. Okay, yeah. even going to Virginia, the Richmond International Airport. I like how these very small airports call themselves international, international just sure. because they may get a flight from, you know, Canada. A flight, right. <laughs> you know. But um, it is the backup landing spot for Air Force One. So, um, but for whatever reason, they only take the small planes. Yeah. You know, similar to like San Jose Airport, our local San Jose sure. Airport, which takes small planes. Um, but, no, I've never had that had that happen. Uh, the the the, clo- the closest thing when when traveling with my daughters one time back from Virginia we were wa- flying out of Washington Dulles is because of weather here in San Francisco the flights were delayed back east and the only flights that they were, and and it was also very windy in Washington and the only flights they were allowing to take off were jumbo jets okay. so anything less than the 767 was not allowed to, you know, take off because they didn't feel like it can withstand the wind shear hmm. uh, taking off. And we were going on a 757. And when they finally cleared us to go, and you know, we boarded and, and, and the pilot let us know uh, it is going to be bumpy on climb out. That's all he said. That's all. Now, mind you, me and my two daughters were not sitting together because we, we, we missed our flight, which I planned beautifully to fly back on a 777. Okay, nice. And missed it. <laughs> missed it. To end up on a 757. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, that's like uh, expecting to drive in a Cadillac and being forced into a Toyota. <laughs> into a Prius. Okay. <laughs> um, and he said, yeah, it's going to be a little bumpy on the climb out. That's his exact words. Nice and matter-of-factly. And uh, it was rocking and rolling like you were on a roller coaster. <laughs> Holy smokes. That's how bad it was. Wow. Now, 
all I was thinking about was, you know, what, what my daughters were experiencing. Now, I found out after we landed what it was like for them because they're sitting next to strangers now. Um, and there was a, um, a young man. They were one seat apart from each other, and there was a gentleman who was not nice enough to move over and allow them to sit next to each other. So they were he was they were in the three seats, right, right, and he right. was in the middle, right, and he refused to take the window or the aisle so they can sit next to each other. And just as a side note, who wants the middle? Like I'm, I would like They're just people who are like that. I want the aisle or and the window. So one, I don't think it bothers the youngest one so much, but the older one, you know, is not that's not a fan of the uh, derby, the, especially on takeoff. You know, when you're up there at forty thousand feet, you know you got a long way to drop. You know, but on takeoff, it's like yeah, anything goes. <laughs> All right, okay. sure. But uh. If there is a plane to be on, it's the 757 because it's got such a powerful engine. It was just powering up, but you can just feel it when it drops. But I told my daughter, it's just no one thing. When it drops, the plane's still going forward. It's not dropping and stopping. It's not like drops and stops moving. Right. It's, it's dropping at the same time. It's moving. I said, so that's how turbulence is. Right. So, but they survived. Of course. Survived to tell the story. To tell the story. Um, so as you know, I'm sure you listened. Last week we did uh, the Encounter Group. Encounter Group breakdown. The back, the backbone of the therapeutic community. And I decided this week um, we never talked about the therapeutic community itself. We've done many things around it. Mentioned it several times. Mentioned yep. it several times and talked about the various stages of treatment, the, you know, the, how we use the trimesters That's as right. an analogy, but we never really talked about the therapeutic community itself. And, and I agree. And how that works. Uh, and, and we're, of course, we're partial to the therapeutic community because what we know, so we came up in, um, yes, I will argue anyone to the death that it works better than any other environment, but I am open to any means of anyone entering recovery, but if you said... Which one will you choose? What would you recommend? I will always say the therapeutic community, the TC for short. And that's what I'm going to be referring to it as we move on, the TC, because therapeutic community takes too long to say. That's right. Now, as we slide into our topic, what is this thing we call the TC? This, this uh, amoeba, this organism. That's right. Because that's what it is. It's it's a living thing. It's a living, breathing thing, that's for sure. Uh, I wrote in the description that as you live your daily existence in the TC, if you're fortunate enough to experience one, I know we here at OCG do the TC. Daytop, New Jersey is keeping the TC alive. Phoenix House in New York and in Los Angeles does a version of the TC. And there are others sprinkled about the country that do a version of the TC. Um, so it's still alive. It's still out there. Um, it was the first. Okay. Um, so one of the things I wrote was, some, you know, what are the everyday goals of living in the TC? Um, it's about compassion. Now, keep in mind, uh, one person's experience may not be all of these things. Very okay? true. But the goal of your experience is to experience these things. doesn't mean that you're going to, but this is the goal. 
Because one thing we can't control are the humans, the people that are in the organism, in the TC with you at any given moment in time. Right. Okay? But it's our hope, it's our goal that you experience compassion, that there is a uh, a striving for achievement, because there are certain things up in the TC for you to accomplish that, achieve, achieve things. Uh, that there's a development of discipline, and there's certainly the backbone of the TC, accountability and responsibility. Now, how that is how that manifests itself is where the TC sometimes can go from one extreme to the other. <laughs> yes, we'll touch, on, we'll touch on that yes, a little bit. Yes, indeed, yes. It has seen wild fluctuations in that <laughs> arena, <laughs> yes. but we'll touch on that. Yes, indeed. Um, and all of that is achieved through, I use the term community life only so that everyone is kind of understands, but in reality, the correct word is family life, because it is an effort to recreate the family environment, not necessarily the community, because when you think community, you think, you know, outside of the family. Right. But, so, think family. I use the word community just so that everyone can, it's a common word, Um but we're trying to recreate the family because so many that come into the TC have been devoid of the family experience or a positive family experience. So we're trying to create that. It's based on a social learning model. What is that? Just Well, in a nutshell, it's where we, we learn through various external pressures provided through seeing others do things or from our peers teaching us things or forcing us to do things, you know, breaking out the whip, you know, social learning's been around since the beginning of man. Uh, and it's done in formal and informal settings. We'll talk about the formal and the informal because those also form other aspects people would consider backbone elements of the TC. Sure. Central belief to the TC. Now, this is very important. Central belief to the TC. In this sentence, I am the TC. You are the TC. Anyone else that's in the TC can make the same statement, I am the TC, because it sets up the next phrase. Central to the TC is the belief that a person can change. So I believe that you can change. It's very important that I believe you can change because then that if I because of that belief, I'm then going to implement the facets of the TC on you. Rightly or wrongly, meaning I'm going to do the best I can based on what I know, what I've been taught as a client to implement them on you because I believe you can change. Right. If I don't believe you can change, am I going to waste my time with you? Just talking about human nature. And we tell people that. Right. You know, if someone is spending time giving you focus, confronting you, et cetera, it's one of two things. They care about you or they don't care about you and they're just practicing their confrontation. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Yeah, no, the belief that someone can change, especially – and I'd say more so from a staff's standpoint than someone's peer, mm-hmm. um, 
Well, actually, it was very important in both realms. But mm-hmm. from a staff standpoint, just be in, in being professional, the way that your treatment is going to be delivered, mm-hmm. the the method you use and, and attitude you bring to delivering treatment to an individual, an individual is definitely going to be influenced and shaped by no matter how good you are at self-checking, mm-hmm. you know, your own perception, if you believe whether or not this individual is interested in changing or can change, mm-hmm. this is going to have an impact the way the formal part of treatment is delivered. As far as your peer group, it's also important too because we've always told the people who, and funny you talked about Encounter Group last week, mm-hmm. I wish I was here to talk about that with you, but the people who get the heavy focus every single group and have 10, 12, 15 people giving them focus that we tell them, Hey, you know, it's an opportunity for you to look at yourself, but that also means something that the community is taking their time out to do that. When you're behaving the same way and you go from 10 people giving you focus to no one dropping slips on you anymore. Bad sign. Your community is giving up on you, my friend. You're on your own is what mm-hmm. they're saying. So bad sign. Definitely important. And just for the sake of our audience, when we use the term focus, we mean in an encounter group, that means you're being encountered. That's right. Um, so you got to believe that the person can change and that, as you just eloquently stated, that the family can play a role in fostering this change. Mm-hmm. So essentially positive peer pressure. That's right. And we also acknowledge, because one of our unwritten philosophies is act as if we acknowledge that it's okay in the beginning to go through the motions and act as if, even if you're not feeling it, you're not believing it right now, you're not, you haven't bought in, but since you're here, for whatever, whatever, whatever is motivating your presence, um, you're here. And so you're going to just go along, and the hope is is that at some point during that process of you, you know, that stopgap period, that you see the the benefits of, hey, maybe I can change, maybe I can do this, maybe I can succeed at this. That's the hope. So we allow that 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 period to occur of where we know you're not bought in and we know that you might not really care, but we ask you to act as if. Right. There are tools that are used to implement this change that we talk about. And they are, we call them the five core concepts of the TC. And then they are then what do you want to describe them as? Minor tools or other helper tools that are used to affect those five core concepts. Right. All right. So let's name the concepts. You have behavior management. Okay. Yep. Okay. That's dealing with a person's behavior. Mm-hmm. Throw attitude in there too. Attitude and behavior. Sure. Okay. Um, emotional slash psychological. That's right. Okay. Intellectual. And spiritual. That's right. Physical in there somewhere. Gonna, yep. Uh, vocational slash survival skills. Right. Okay. And then physical and medical. Yes. Okay. So those are the five core categories, concepts that we focus on in the TC. 
That's right. And there is no order in terms of when they either come into the picture. Come into the picture, exactly. Example, in, in my time in treatment, many people came in, and what they needed first was medical attention. Sure, physical component. Yeah, they needed to get some medical issues straightened out and get some things back on track before they can even begin to focus on really on quote-unquote treatment. So there's no order, uh, or let's say there's no mandated order of how things should occur. Right. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the attitude and behavior. Okay, good. That's the uh, fun one. (laughs) Because that one gets the most press. Of course. Okay. People come in. We know that by the time they leave, that the attitude they come in with cannot be the attitude they leave with. The behavior they come in with cannot be the behavior they leave with. So you, so you can't leave lazy and non-caring, is what you're saying. No. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, I say that as a as a bit of a joke yes, to our joking. host here because there have been several meetings he has led with the staff where he has begged and pleaded the staff to teach them anything other than they are a lazy and non-caring yes. individual. Yes. <laughs> How do we go about changing a person's attitude? changing getting them on the process of changing their behavior. We know we use peer pressure. Would you agree that's the main tool that's used? Absolutely. Okay. To affect that change. Absolutely. Um but there are certain uh things that are in the structure that are inherent in the structure that that help create that. Um there's meetings um we limit privileges, so you have to you have to earn things. So th- a lot of things are based on deservability, and so as you as your attitude improves and changes and 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 conforms to a certain set of ideals that we know are going to are essential to you succeeding, uh, you get rewarded for that. Right. Okay. With the ultimate goal being that you'll have this own you'll you'll have this system set up for yourself when you leave. You know what I'm saying? You'll be your own rewarder and, and set your own standards and reward yourself in your own way when you yes. do what you're supposed to do. That's the whole goal. Not that we're going to always be around. The program is always going to be there. No, that's not the case. So you have to develop your own. But we start that process. Um, we have a chair. Now, this the, a lot of the Daytopians and and the OCGNs are aware of the prospect chair, but I, I know of other programs who have a chair, what they call it, we don't know, um, that's used for various reasons, positive and, and sometimes unsundry. <laughs> right. You know, there were some directors throughout the years who used that chair to the utmost, having people sit on it for days and days. <laughs> and it's not a comfy right. and, and, and it's never a comfy chair with padding. No. It is made of the hardest oak. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So, um but it was used to test your commitment. So the thinking was the in, I would say call this the Neanderthal thinking was if you're committed, 
you would sit on that chair for five days to show us that you're you're committed to your recovery and committed to changing your life. Right. Well, as time went on, we realized that really, does a person really need to sit on that hard chair for five days? Because what happens if a day if they spent two days and day three they couldn't take it anymore and they left? Who wins in that scenario? Right. We wouldn't win, and our our goal is to win, not for us, to win on behalf of the, of a client. So we realize, you know, we we have to do things that make sense, uh, because then the borderlines on silliness and then on punishment, and then it doesn't make any sense because now the client's gone. And was that the goal? No, no, that wasn't the goal. The goal is to keep the client, and so you have to. Amend, adjust, and adapt accordingly. That's right. Which is what we've done over the years. So instead of spending a week on the chair, it's now four or four and a half days. <laughs> That's right. We modified. In Cattle Group, which we talked about last week, morning meeting. One day we might do a show on uh, on morning meeting as a topic. Morning meeting would be good because it has a lot of things to it. Uh, a haircut. The old school haircut, which we now call, we don't call it a haircut anymore out here in California, in OCG. But I think in Daytime, New Jersey, they still do call it a haircut. Okay. Um, we call it a... FBI, which stands for Formal Behavioral Incident. However, upon that change, and I, you know, you get stuck in your ways, all of us do in mm-hmm. life, so change is difficult. But that's one of the changes I liked because... Receiving or giving someone an FBI sounds serious <laughs> because you're drawn. You know, I'm thinking we might want to change the old dealt with to a CIA somehow and <laughs> come up with a good acronym. But yes, it is called an FBI now. Formal behavioral incident or intervention. Um, a talking to, which still the spoken, spoken to, to, still yeah. called the spoken to. Um, you give out learning experiences. Brief story on learning experience. When I first went into Daytop and heard someone was shot down, I didn't know what that was and was extremely curious and was searching around asking people who were here a little bit longer. This is in the entry unit. So what what happened? How did they get shot down? What happened to them? Um, Then they explained. I learned the language that it means that they, you know, whatever job they had, they got fired from their job in the kitchen or as an expediter or whatever. And uh, they were then given a learning experience, um, which probably involved some physical type of cleaning or something of that, some physical work, um, which still contributed to the well-being of the family, but it wasn't a regular job. But you were basically, in theory, cleaning up a violation of the rules. Right. Okay. And as a result of that, you got shot down. You lost your job. You got fired. And so the the, ter- the terminology used was shot, getting shot down. You were put on a learning experience. And of the, the most serious learning experience was being on spare parts. Mm-hmm. Now, I know all of this language sounds alien to, to people. Right. Okay. And, and it is. It's its own language inside. And as a matter of fact, one of the difficulties we have with staff is because we, you know, you, a lot of the reporting is now external. We're not just talking to ourselves inside the program. So over the right. years, you have to get people. So we use internal language, and then now when we're talking to the, you know, sending a, a report to the PO outside, we have to remember not to use internal language because a lot of the reports are read in court. Right. And so you can imagine reading the PO reading. So yeah, he got shot down. 
uh, he got uh, shot down the spare parts. He was given a haircut. Um, and people were like, what? What are you talking about? Right. What does all that stuff mean? But spare parts is the most serious learning experience that a person can be assigned. And basically it means you have one foot in the door, well, one foot in the door and one foot on a banana peel. So whatever you did was such a serious violation of the rules and the violation of the integrity of the family, integrity of the program, that your behavior has caused you to be up for consideration of being terminated from the program. Right. But in lieu of that, you have been kept in the program, kept a part of the family, but a banana peel has been figuratively glued to the bottom of your sneaker. That's right. And one slip up, and you could be gone out the door. Behavioral contracts. Yeah. You know, so if you've really been doing something, not everyday normal stuff, but violating, uh, you know, let's say the secondary level of, 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 of rules, maybe disrespecting staff, uh, disrespecting, uh, you know, females in the house, on the floor, um, you know, things that are out of bounds for behavior that's acceptable on the floor, um, and you are a repeat offender, so to speak, we might put you on a behavioral contract where we'll say, you know, for the next 30 days, you cannot do this. Because remember, we're all about the safety of the environment. And so more often than not, it's someone that's endangering the environment, whether that means they brought drugs back onto the property. And not necessarily the relapse itself, because people do leave treatment programs, whether they be residential or outpatient, and, and relapse. Okay? And we don't punish the relapse. But I have next to zero tolerance for, because I don't understand why it's necessary to bring something back and violate the integrity of the therapeutic community. Right. You can use out there and come back and say, cop, you know what, I, I was on my pass and I, I relapsed. But don't come back from your pass and bring a bottle back into the facility or bring a, some marijuana back to the facility. What's that about? What's that thing? What's that line of thinking about? Right. Okay. So that's one of my top pet peeves. Not the relapse itself. Agreed. Uh, the one that's used the most common, the pull-up. That's not only used in in TCs. That's not only used in treatment programs. Pull-ups are used all over the world. Every day. All over the world, you're always pulling somebody up. Every day, you just may you not know, be using that exact phrase. You're not calling it a pull-up, but it is a pull-up. And let's separate. Let's let's look at the word pull and up. Okay, we're not saying put down. No, <laughs> we're not saying the put down. We're saying the pull up, right? So you're 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 helping someone by correcting their attitude, correcting their behavior, and it's hope that you're doing it in a way that the person can receive it in a manner that they can say, okay, that person's looking out for me. They may not like what you're saying. They may not like the attention that they're getting as a result of their behavior, but they can see that they're being pulled up rather than put down. Right. If you have children, you've pulled them up millions of times. 
if they're now grown. From age zero all the way up until now, you're always pulling them up, pulling them up, pulling them up. Heightening their awareness to yeah. something. I would hope it's not you're not putting them down, putting them down, putting them down. You're always pulling them up. Right. You see them not doing something they should be doing, you pull them up. You make them aware, as you say, heightening their awareness. And it has a lot to do with the motivation behind why you're doing it, mm-hmm. which will come out verbally and either sound like you're putting someone down versus you're pulling somebody up. Mm-hmm. Because am I doing this to, hey, remind you, hey, this is important and it's something you need to be on top of, or am I doing this to make you feel bad about yourself? Or to score points. Or to score points, exactly. Make myself look good. Exactly. That happens. Um, learning the unwritten philosophies and, inco- and learning to incorporate them. Yep. One day we'll do a show on the unwritten philosophies because there's so many. They're, and they're very good. And they're very good, right. Honesty, trust, trust in your environment. Forgiveness. Blind faith. Yep. To no, be, no to, free lunch. No free lunch to be aware, to be alive. Can't keep it unless you give it away. Be careful what you ask for. You just might get it. Yeah. Act as if. Very, very good ones. Yep. And then they all have an applicability to some aspect of TC life. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, we do seminars where we talk about things in the TC. Um, and then, last but not least, but as we started out by saying, the most probably the most important tool that we have at our disposal, not only in the TC, not only in the treatment programs, but out in society, is positive peer pressure. What's its polar opposite? Negative peer pressure. We've all experienced it. We've all, at one point or another, if you're a human, have succumbed to negative peer pressure. Um, some devastatingly, some not, okay? Uh, but positive peer pressure is just as equally powerful sure as is. negative peer pressure. Sure is. Um, and so we, we, we strive in the TC to create an environment of positive peer pressure. Now here is, and I'm going to purposely mispronounce this word in honor of my Sunday school teacher, here is the dilemma. Okay. Okay. Yes. In the TC, there's always a battle, I like to say, of good, going on a battle of between good and evil. I don't mean evil in the really terrible sense, okay? What I mean is you have, there's always a group that's trying to do their thing, get their act together, they're there for the right reasons. And then on the other side, there's a group that haven't made up their mind yet. I was sent here by my PO. I'm not bought in. You know what I'm saying? And so they're spending most of their time figuring out how to get over. So these two forces are always battling each other. Now, I've said it for many years. If the forces of good in the TC, are in the majority by at least two-thirds to one-third, then you can overwhelm the other force. That's right. Okay? However, if it's flipped or even 50-50, 
it's an ongoing battle and struggle. Mm-hmm. Now, the mistake that staff make when they're presented with this dilemma is trying to intervene to sway the battle. When in fact, let's say the positive peer pressure is overwhelming the negative peer pressure by two-thirds to one-third. You're hands off. You're allowing the TC, the organism, to just function as it is. But let's say it's flipped. You only have one-third people doing their thing and two-thirds forming a subculture of, of evil and malcontent and deceit. Yes. Any other words we can think of to describe evil? Uh, no, those are pretty good ones. <laughs> um, and so when it's flipped to that side, there's a, almost an instinctual w- uh, wanting to step in and help correct it. And it's not our role to do that. That one-third has to stand up and do their best to hold off that two-thirds and try and pluck, pluck, even if it's one at a one at a time, pluck one of the of the you know the the those on the two-third side and pluck flip them, them, flip them over to your side, one at a time if you have to, without any help from me, the staff. Yeah. Again, I'm just there to make sure that everything stays safe, everyone feels safe, and that the TC does what it's supposed to do, which is struggle with these things. And it'll take care of it on its own. Now, here's the reality. Every group in the TC creates its own culture. Right, so you have you know different blocks going through at the same time, you know, like three or four month groups going through, and they create their own culture, and they get to determine whether or not the culture of that TC group, that TC family, is going to be a positive or negative. Right. Okay. And what their legacy is going to be. And I always tell them about their legacy because I've been around long enough to see each group come through. And I can remember what the legacy of that particular group was based on what was going on in the house at that time. Were there a lot of rules being violated? Were there a lot of um, incidents occurring at that time? How was the TC managing those things at that time? So they, they determine what their legacy is without my involvement. When I say my, I mean the staff. So those that are positive got a lot of work to do. Got a lot of work to do when they're outnumbered. And more often than not, today's world, okay, maybe not back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, when... I would say the majority of people going into treatment were going in under their, you know, because they wanted to go in and, and, and get their life together. Well, it's very different when someone's being forced in. And, of course, not that it doesn't mean that that person who's been forced in by the courts or by their PO or parole officer, et cetera, 
or even dragged in by their mother on by their heir, that doesn't mean that that person can't, their motivation can't change, you know, within two or three months. We see that happen all the time. But it's a different, it, it creates a difference in the environment when you have people who walking in the door, it's not their choice while they're, why they're there. So right off the bat, you have a negative presence inherently. Not that the person might be negative, but their presence because they're not saying, you know what, I need some help. I right. want to come this is in. Where I want to be. Right. right. They're coming in saying, yeah, my PO told me to show up here at nine o'clock. That's, uh, yeah, You're that's getting right. a different individual. That's right. Okay. And so we got to be aware of that. And something to be said briefly about that kind of individual is that is the kind of individual who, if you can flip them or they happen to change that stance by themselves, mm-hmm. that can be the biggest influence for the other side in the community because they can reach more those coming through the door that don't want to be there mm-hmm. because they were in that seat. Yep. Uh, some of the uh, activities or other helper tools, I'd like to call them, that we utilize to uh, get the TC to work as as its own organism. Sometimes we assign written work to people. That's right. Um, Usually some sort of essay that's reflective in nature. Right. Uh, we, as staff, this is our role now, we express approval or disapproval through the use of our voice, our tone, our um, intensity, our looks, our words. We have a thing that's called dropping lugs. Okay? And when I first came to treatment, I said, well, you know, what is this dropping lug nuts about? <laughs> and I was in the car, so yeah. when I say lugs, I'm just thinking lug nuts. Well, you know, dropping lugs. I mean... That's you know dropping a dropping a little something on somebody stepping off. It could be something positive. Hey, so you're doing your thing the other day, and boom, you're gone. Or it could be the opposite. Right. Hey, so you in the books the other day, and stepping off. That's dropping a lug. You just boom, you drop it and you go. That's it. We also, I advise all of us to continue to do this on the outside. I have done it with my kids, dropping lugs all the time. <laughs> My uh, my wife has used it against me mm. uh, to to good effect. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed there are dishes in the sink this morning that were in there last night. Mm. Anyway, have a good day at work. I'll, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll see you when you get home. Mm. Okay, yeah, note to self. Uh, we got to make that happen. Get those dishes clean. Hey, been there. <laughs> Example. <laughs> see that box is still there that I that I I I was done with two days ago. Mm. Interesting. <laughs> yes. Oh, good. They're but, effective. Yes, they are effective. Uh, hmm. B plus in math. Interesting. Last last semester was an A. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> That's you, it. you don't have to say much when you're dropping a lug. No. E- even if it's a positive lug. That's right. Yeah, exactly. No. And that's what makes a lug effective. It's uh, It's just a quick jab. Yep. Just a quick jab. Oh, wow. A in math. Good stuff. They give A pluses? Just checking. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, restitution. You do something wrong to the family, you violate the integrity of the family, you have to make it up to the family. And, you know, what you do is determined by, I mean, how you make, what we assign you to do restitution based on whatever it is that you've done to violate the integrity of the family. Ties right into one of the unwritten philosophies, compensation is valid as well. Another one, exactly. Uh, this ties back to encounter group. Last last week's topic, we focus on intense feelings because we want to we want to get to the nitty gritty quickly because we know we don't have a lot of time, so we can't spend a lot of time on fluff and on surface nonsense. We need to get into the belly of the beast, right? So we want to deal with the real the real tough tough stuff. That's what the TC can do. We challenge and confront. Although I have instituted a new word instead of confrontation, oh, I like the sta- I like the staff to use the word care confrontation. Yes. And so because of that, some have accused me of going soft. <laughs> Not going soft. I'm just saying, you know, you want people to know that the 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 care confrontation they're get getting is because you care, not because you don't care. I'm sure that makes sense on some level. Well, that's a good point. You're only getting the soft from the old school, the old <laughs> school folks. <laughs> uh, we don't allow you to isolate too much. Although I am a proponent of allowing people time to daydream and, and time to themselves, because this is not prison. That's right. Okay. People right. need to have the time to be in their own space, space and, and and think and and daydream and 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 you know, be with themselves. Completely agree. But we don't allow it in excess. Completely okay. agree. Um, we already spoke about limiting privileges. Uh, role modeling is very important. So it's our expectation. So we're ready. It's it's unspoken that as staff we're going to be role models. But we expect our elder residents, as they progress and move and mature through the program, that they will become role models for the for the for the newer residents coming in, so they can look and see, oh, that's how I'm supposed to carry myself. That's how I'm, I'm supposed to participate. That's how I'm supposed to conduct, you know, uh, myself around the house. Yep. Yep. Uh, peer support, mentoring. That's a, also ties into role modeling. Um. We don't do this as much, but I'm still going to bring it out because it was it was very big back in the day, giving people signs. So you know, if you stole someone's deodorant out their room, you're bound to have. You were back in the day, you would have a sandwich sign. You know, the sign you used to see outside the delis. We'd get a sign that big that would hang around you. So you had you'd have the sign in the front and the sign in the back, and it would say, "I'm a thief." And then what that would do is it would cause people to come up to you, other family members, and say, well, what do you mean you're a thief? What happened? And you would have to t- say, yeah, I went into Chris's room and I saw his deodorant. Why did you do that? And so it would spur carefrontation, which would force you to dig deep down and to explain what was it that why you felt the need to steal something that you could have just easily asked for. Right. And got without stealing from another family member. 
So that that was the purpose of the sign. Now, as you know, time has gone on. The signs have shrunk. Uh, you know, we didn't want to. You know, we got away from. It was thought to be. My hands are in air quotes because I. Uh, don't really disagree, but I have abided by. It was thought to be humiliating for people to walk around with the signs. And so now the signs aren't as big. You're not wearing them now. You might carry a sign that may be 18 by 24 <laughs> inches. That's right. Okay. I you didn't want to shame somebody. Yeah. So, And it, it served the same purpose. The sign would say, uh, confront me on why I don't care about myself. And obviously there's something that you have done to show that, and so we want the family to talk to you about this. Yeah, it elicits that positive peer pressure exactly. that we were speaking about earlier. Right. Repetitive activity. What is that? Repetitive activity. So when you come into the TC, you you learn about one, how to fold your clothes, how to keep your clothes, how to keep your, your living space neat, clean, tidy. You make your bed every morning. You wake up every morning at the same time. There's a structure. We eat at the same time. We go to groups at the same time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Repetitive activity. Now, why is that important? Because more likely than not, when you go back out into society and get back into the world of living, and doing what people do in society, you're going to engage in what? Repetitive activity. Structure. So the co-host just summed it up in one word. Got to have structure. Incremental reward system. So in the program, we have that instituted, an incremental reward system built into the TC. What happens when you leave, though? How are you going to establish your own incremental reward system? What makes you deserving of spending $200 on those Air Jordans? What have you done to reward yourself in that manner? Right. How have you earned that? Just because you got it in your pocket, $200 in your pocket? What have you done? You have to develop your own internal standards and own incremental reward system for yourself. Because you can reward yourself. You should reward yourself. Yeah. How you develop that is going to be entirely up to you. The TC has its own built in to give you an idea not only of how to model it, but it serves its own purpose of achievement and then reward. And what was that unwritten philosophy you talked about? Compensation, Compensation is valid. Planning and goal setting. I'm going to go back again to when I was in treatment, and uh, not in my peer group, but I think the peer group that was ahead of me, uh, one of the things that I saw and noticed was that there was no, they really didn't have a, a, any direction in terms of what were their plans for post-treatment upstate. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and so, so what are you going to do when you go down to reentry? I, I don't know. And I don't know is an unacceptable answer. Scary position to put somebody in. Okay. And it, they made it very clear, very, very clear at the very beginning of your treatment that this is about self-help and it's about 
planning what you're going to be doing post-treatment. And so if you just waste your time up there doing and getting involved in nonsense and other things, I, I used to describe it as at some point between the 11th month mark and the 13th month mark, you're going to get a tap on the shoulder. There's no warning. There's no like letter the day before. Right. They're just going to tap you on the shoulder and say, you're going down the reentry tomorrow. And so if you've wasted the last four or five months doing nothing and not planning and, and, and getting yourself prepared for you know the next phase of your treatment life, many people had scared looks on their faces oh, when they yeah. were standing in front of the family, you know, being, you know, congratulated that they're moving on and so on and so forth. And, you know, not everyone looked happy. There were looks of shock and disbelief. You got to make sure or be careful not to fall into the trap that the TC can pose sometimes. What I mean by that is if you're someone who does well and doesn't fight against the current, Mm -hmm. it can be a very rewarding situation to come home to if you're working or to be a part of because you've earned a position of privilege. Um, let's just say you're you're a coordinator, and for those of you who are listening who don't know what that position is in the house, one of the highest positions you can hold as a resident. You are staff's right or left-hand people, so to speak, and being on a high phase or being a coordinator can come with certain privileges or luxuries, mm-hmm. amenities, perks, perks, and that can, especially for someone who's coming in from a life that was very chaotic or, you know, drugs or homelessness or jail to that, it can be very easy to be comfortable, become mm-hmm. very comfortable in that um, and not really remind yourself or be aware of the fact that you need to prepare yourself to go because it's not always going to be like this. Right. You can fall into some complacency there, and that's a scary place to be. And one of the ways we would try and help that is um, remove people from the, the positions, the high positions in the hierarchy prior to them as they're getting ready to phase out so that they didn't so that they realize that this is uh this is the therapeutic community that you're in, the self contained environment. You're now getting ready to go into the real world. And so you go you go you leave as you came in. You didn't come in as a coordinator, you're not going to leave as a coordinator. That's the way it should be. Doesn't always work that way, but ideally when you think about it the person should be focusing on themselves and what their what their goals are in their next step and next phases, not about running the house up until the very last day that they leave. The last two things, quickly. Um, peer group reprimands, nothing more powerful. So that can come in the form of the what used to be called the haircut or now the uh, the, the FBI or even in what we've instituted because we've kind of modernized the TC, by the way, uh, the uh, the GBI used to be known as the dealt with. Right. So we've always had kind of three levels of uh, boosting up in severity based on the behavior, the spoken to being the most minor, which, as the host mentioned prior, the term pull-up, where just a simple pull-up would be instituted. Mm-hmm. Uh, a dealt with, which is the middle level, and that's usually, and that's now what we call the GBI, which stands for Global 
behavioral incident or intervention, Mm -hmm. which is done, just as it said, globally Mm -hmm. in front of the family, which is where you'll get that group kind of feedback. Mm -hmm. Then the formal, you're still getting some group feedback, but it's not done in front of everybody, a panel of maybe two or three of your peers and the staff, and that's for very, very serious incidents. So yes, the global is the perfect example of what we do in terms of getting kind of group feedback as it pertains to behavior or attitudes. Exactly. Um, The last one is positive support networks. So it used to be said if you left a treatment setting and you left with one friend, you were very lucky. And so with that line of, with, with, with that being the norm, okay, that goodness, can I leave with one friend, it it put more emphasis and importance on establishing a positive support network. What that looks like can be many different things. For some people, it becomes the AA and NA fellowship. Okay, For others, it just becomes they surround themselves with people who are living the same type of lifestyle that they live. You know, people, clean, sober, drug-free lifestyle, and that becomes their positive support network. Right. And if you are lucky or fortunate enough to have a friend that you made in treatment or have a peer group that's still together and that, or that stays together or plans to stay together, um, that's even more wonderful. I mean, that's the ultimate ideal because no one knows you better than your peers. And Yeah, and it's incredible. And if for any of you out there who either have heard of a TC and, and maybe are feeling like you're in need of treatment for yourself – or somebody who knows somebody who may need to or is going to be entering treatment, that might be one of the most powerful things about the TC is you may not necessarily leave with a bunch of friends, and that's not what you're in there to do, but if you do establish one or two great relationships along the way, you're talking about lifelong, really awesome relationships, as the host was saying. I can... I don't disclose much about my pastor experience in the TC on this show. But that will come when we do the true uh, e-Hollywood story. That that will come. But I will say um, probably my best friend to this day who was the best man at my wedding was indeed a great friend of mine that I made while in in a therapeutic community Mm -hmm. in treatment. Um, And we ended up getting, you know, an apartment together and lived for seven years while we were going through school and other things. And we're both married now. And, you know, the the bond will be lifelong. And it is pretty, pretty awesome, pretty powerful. All right. So let me close with how are all these things in the TC supposed to take, take place? It's supposed to take place in a caring, challenging and respectful atmosphere of structured pair interaction. That's how it's supposed to take place. Mm-hmm. And that, is, that, in essence, is what the TC is about. The environment should be caring, but it should be a challenging environment. There should be respect. Doesn't mean there always going to be. Because I always say the TC reflects what society is. So you're going to have all types of people, which to me is what makes it beautiful. Mm-hmm. Because you get to learn to to deal with and experience being with all types of people, which is going to mimic 
what society is going to present to you when you eventually progress out into your next phase. That's right. So that's the therapeutic community, which we've been talking around for months. And we could probably talk about for <laughs> two yeah. or three more shows. Yep. That just touches on it lightly. All right, sir. Why don't we take a, uh, a music break? Okay. And uh, come back on the other side with uh, recovery support. Okay. Sounds good. We do see we have some callers on hold. We appreciate you calling into the show, and we'll be getting to you shortly.
Roach on Recovery is a program of OCG Radio. It deals with many topics related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment and recovery. Our Recovery Support Time is a show segment where you can receive support from our host for any questions or issues you wish to present related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment or recovery. You can reach our host live by calling 646-564-9909. That's 646-564-9909. Or you can send your questions via email at any time to ocgworkca at gmail.com. That's ocgworkca at gmail.com. And our host will respond to your questions on the air. Roach on Recovery. Recovery Support Time. A time for us to help you. Recovery time for recovery support time six four six five six four ninety nine zero nine is the number you want to call in. We just finished our topic today of the therapeutic community. I know we didn't do it justice, but we'll probably touch back on on it again some point in the future. Absolutely, delve into it a little bit deeper. Uh, let's go to the phones. He's been holding the longest. Let's go to Wangoi from Redwood City. Welcome. Hi. Um, my question is, why is relapse a part of some people's recovery? Um, well, there's a, a short, raw answer to that. Would you like that one first? Sure. Because that's the choice that they've made. It doesn't have to be. But certain things have been put into motion, and that ends up being the result. Okay. Does that answer it for you? I guess. Hello? Yes. Why did you want to know that? Um, well... I myself have relapsed several times, and um, I'm just wondering why is it a part of my 
um, you know, part of my recovery. You know, some people, you know, they ha- they don't relapse at all, and and why? And, uh, it, so you're asking yourself, why did you? Yes. Why did you? Um. I don't know. I guess I've been I've used for so long that that um I thought I was missing out on something, but I think this last time I realized that I'm not. Now that I'm starting to um, live in a structured environment. You do know that you're not always going to be in a structured environment. Yes. You do know that you're going to leave that structured environment either, you know, to go home to visit or permanently. Yes. And so at some point, you're going to have to decide and commit that, you know what, regardless of whatever happens, whatever I experience, whatever I see, however I feel, Mm Mm-hmm. Using is not an option for me. I need I to confront. I need to confront and deal with whatever it is I'm experiencing head on, not try and run from it, hide from it, escape from it. Yeah. We got to stop that revolving door. Yes. I appreciate your honesty. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for calling. Okay. Bye. Bye bye. A number of the questions we have in the X Files continually deal with relapse, 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 relapse. Um, if you remember, I think our second show, um, one of our loyal listeners, Catherine, had mentioned how I don't think she mentioned she was surprised, but I think. It was. It was. I'm quoting here. I hope I'm not misquoting her, but she was alarmed at how many people were really struggling. You know, we're trying to uh, get this recovery thing right uh, and get it right, and, and it is a struggle. Let's go to Rick Vallejo. Rick, welcome. Good evening. Um, yeah, I have a. Uh... Rick, can you Rick, can you speak up? We can hardly hear you. Okay, can you hear me? Yes, that's better. Thank you. Okay. Um, yeah, I actually had a superficial question, but uh, I also just recently relapsed, and um, unfortunately, relapsed twice. And my question I have is, why and how would you offer guidance in getting up and getting on? Um, and what I mean by that is, hindsight is killing me because um, I had a pretty good streak of multiple years, um, close to five years, and um, and it just seems like so easily I fell off a course. My 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 treatment and my recovery was at at a point really, really tight and really solid and, and honesty and integrity and you know, the whole nine and working the steps and 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 I'm I'm grappling with how I let myself fall into a hole 
and and remain there. Um, I know part of it was taking my will back. I know part of it was defiance. I know part of it was just a lack of caring. Um, but what I'm what I'm what's hard for me to understand is nothing physically or mentally has changed for me, other than physically doing the drug. And 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 it's it hurts. It's it's um, embarrassing. And I just want to maybe like some light shed on it. Maybe you could help me shed some light on it or understand it. Well, the first thing I want to commend you for is being able to articulate how you feel about it. Mm-hmm. It's That's very important, believe it or not. Even with... Uh, being upset at yourself, you still have to be able to tell yourself how how you feel other than just that I'm angry. Um, So when you say that you're hurt and you're embarrassed, you know, that that hits home. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Um, That's real. That's honest. Yes, sir. When you, when you, and I'm going to use some words that may... (laughs) That may add to the hurt, so uh but it's it's I'm not purposely trying to hurt you when you choose when you ultimately make the choice to uh complete the relapse i e the when you actually pick up the drug and start using that's when you've completed the relapse, but if you want to prevent yourself from going down that road again. You have to backtrack all the way to where did I start going off track, and that's a that's a that's an analysis you have to do. You have to take the time to do. You have to go back in time and try and figure out where was that point in time where I started to go off track, and why did it start to happen? Yeah, I. If you can figure that, if you can identify that, if you can resolve that, then as you move forward again, you can then, if it presents itself again in the future, you can see it. You can see it coming and take corrective action. Yes, sir. But how how long has it been since you relapsed? Uh, my, my last, my latest relapse has been, I believe I'm coming up on 17 days, 18 days. Okay. So you, you have, you have significantly violated the 48 hour rule. Yes, sir. You know what that rule is? You've told me before, but I forgot. I have 48 hours to uh, feel bad about it. You get 48 hours to feel, to, you know, feel bad about yourself and 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 you know, and feel down on yourself and all that stuff. After that, you got to get back to work. You got to get back to get get back on the train and 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 get back on the wagon and try and do what I just told you. How did this happen? How did I make this decision? Why did I make this decision? You know, you're confronting yourself. So if your peers aren't doing it, then you're left with just you. You have to do it. Because I can sense from you that you know what I don't want to continue doing this. I want to, yeah, you know, I had this thing going the right the right way. Yeah. So I got some good news for you. 
Yes, sir. You have a frame of reference of success to point to that you can go back to. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Not everybody yeah. has that. Not everybody has that. Mm-hmm. So you can do okay. this. All yeah. Right? And I thank you for your time. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. Okay, sir. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, let's go to Henry calling from Belmont. Welcome. Hi, how are you doing today? Good, how are you? Well, I've heard some good things about relapse. Good, um, how can we help you? My questions revolve around religious and agnostics. <clears throat> can we get some sort of a separation there. Agnostic, um, what's the difference between agnostic and religion? And how is it utilized in recovery? Are you there? Yeah, I'm there. Oh, okay. I'm there. You're asking me what's the difference between religious and agnostic? Right. I I believe agnostic is a belief in a higher power, but not necessarily the belief in religion. Is that correct? This sort of thing ain't my bank, baby. Did you hear that, Henry? No. I'll, we'll play for you one more time. This sort of thing ain't my bank, baby. Okay. I don't know the answer to that question. Ah. Okay. Yeah, I was. I went to a. You might have have to call up Father Conley. Father Conley. Yeah, Father Conley to get that answer. I don't know the answer to that question. What's your next question? Your other question. Oh, no. Uh, Oh, yeah, okay. Well, when we go back to relapse, you know, I heard a lot of people talk about, you know, I didn't want to do this, I didn't want to do that. You know, when I relapse, it's because I wanted to somewhere down the line. But losing the desire to use, it never goes away completely. And... uh, what are some good tools to employ to lessen that desire when it comes? Well, there are many people who will violently disagree with that statement that right. the desire that the desire never truly goes away. Um, but for those who are who struggle at times with either desire, craving, thoughts, thinking, feeling, etc. It all comes back to ultimately, because you even said it yourself, you know, the relapse at its, at its core, at its simplest definition, is a choice that somebody made, something they wanted to do. Right. You said that. I agree with that. At its core, at its simplest form. Once we right. acknowledge that and we move from that, we then have to establish with the person, are you committed to 
this recovery thing? Or are you on the fence or are you still, you know, struggling with that? And there's only one I, or two answers. Either yes, I'm committed or I'm still kind of struggling here. Right. And if they're still struggling, that's okay because that's an honest answer. Right. And so with the struggle, there's going to come those things that you mentioned. But someone else who has made the commitment and has experienced within them this change that I can only identify as a spiritual feeling that you have when you when you know that that part of your life is now behind you. You're moved on to a different part of your life now. And, you know, thoughts and, and cravings and, and desires are no longer a part of that. You don't experience that. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have memories. And those memories aren't triggered by things that you may see throughout your daily, you know, daily existence. But that doesn't mean that that's something you want to do. It's just a memory of something. Something. It's just a memory of something you once did. Right. And those will never. And those will never go away. Because once you know, once you once you do something, it's in your memory bank. Right. I get that. So sometimes people confuse them, and then they end up mind effing themselves into thinking that. Man, I must still want to use because you know, I, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about this. I saw this, and it reminded me of this, and blah blah blah. And they end up screwing themselves in the mind because you know they don't understand that you know the memories are always going to be there. Right. But as you distance yourself from the lifestyle, further and further and further away, this is where time and distance helps. Okay, as time and distance get further and further away from that life, the memories become more and more distant. What triggers them becomes less and less. Okay. That's my answer. That's my answer, and I'm sticking to it. That's that's your story, and you're sticking to it. So what I get out of this is it just takes time. It does take time. And the other thing you need to get out of this is you need to get Father Conley's number. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Who is Father Conley? I don't know. I just made him up. Oh, okay. Because I didn't know the answer uh, to your first question. More research. Now I yep. went to a meeting last night, and and the and the topic was agnostic, and you know I found myself at a loss as to the difference between being agnostic and being religious. Well, that's something, that's something for you to something for you to research, um, and find out which one you know what it is, and maybe you can call us back and tell us, educate us. How about that? Okay, that sounds right. like a. Plan. I'll do some more research on that and get back to you. All right, sir. Thanks for calling. All right, you guys have a great day. You too. Bye bye. Is there a father coming? I would imagine there has to be. It's a very Irish name, and so you could only imagine that would be the case. Okay. All right. All right. Let's go to uh, 
Charles from North Carolina. Charles, Hello. welcome. Hello. Hello. Yes, hi. How you doing? Welcome. Hi. So I have a quick question. So how do you know when you're truly an alcoholic? Like, say you get like a two DUIs and you enroll yourself in a program, but then you watch like some documentary and you see someone else like an, living a life of an alcoholic that's like 40 times worse than your situation. Was your question, how do you know if you're an alcoholic? Yeah. I don't know, you're probably going to say you're, you're the only one who can answer that question, but yeah. No, the, the how you know you're an alcoholic is the first time you got a DUI. <laughs> no. How many okay. DUIs do you have? I have two. How do you get two DUIs? Um, one was um, like drinking and driving. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad you said that because that was really a setup question that I asked you when I said yeah. how do you get the DUIs. And if yeah. you were going to start Figured telling that. me a story, I was going to tell you the answer is because I was drinking and driving. Yep, basically. That's the answer. And if you're drinking and driving, that means you're not making good decisions once you start drinking. Yeah. That's why I thought there was some difference between alcoholic and bad decision-making when you're under the influence. There are all kinds and all levels of alcoholics. Mm-hmm. There's not just the extreme person, you know, that you think of in your mind. That's one type of alcoholic. Is the other extreme, the person that's well-heeled, three-piece suit, comes home from work every day and just has a little shot of scotch every single day for 30 years. Let him miss one day and see what happens. Is I'm sorry, can you repeat the last part? Let him miss one day for what? I'm sorry. Well, let him miss one day that they they've been having their glass of scotch every day for 30 years. Right. Let them miss one day and see what happens. Yeah, see, so in my situation, I'm a little younger, and um, I've been in a program for about two months now. Right. And, um, you know, I don't really get cravings, for I don't miss it at all, you know. Like, say if I'm around it, say if I'm around it, you know, I get, I don't get, like, I don't get, like, I don't get, like, I don't get, like, uh, like water mouth, you know, I don't get, like, stuff like that, you know. I don't really have a problem being around it. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. But so you have that's to be careful. Like, yeah. Well, no, you have to look at what what was my decision-making and behavior like once I started drinking. Yeah. Yeah, but the thing is, like, I didn't really, I didn't drink, like, when I was out there, like, not in Berlin, like, in the streets and stuff, like, at home, like, I didn't drink, like, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know, but, like, yeah, sometimes I'll drink occasionally, like, on the weekend, and, like, little little pints of beer here and there, and just stuff like that, but nothing, like, once in a while, like, once in the blue moon, I'll go, like, crazy, you know, like, for friends' birthday parties and stuff like that, and then I would, I didn't consider myself an alcoholic, so that's why I'm like, am I really an alcoholic, or am I not an alcoholic, because I got two DUIs, and... So let, let me let me just interject a couple of things here for you. Um, 
one, we can say, and I think you may know this just as well as I do, I think it's safe to say that there are plenty of people who drink who are not alcoholics, who, yeah. who drink socially, who do not have a single DUI to their name and have been drinking yeah. for 30, 40, 50 years plus, right? Yeah, definitely. You said you're relatively young and you've already acquired two? Yeah. So sometimes it's not just the substance in and of itself, but what mm-hmm. happens when we begin to use that substance? Yeah, that's so you got to be careful. You got to be careful. Like I said, I heard you talking about a documentary that you recently watched about. It sounds yes. like a pretty severe alcoholic. Yes, definitely. Well, if they're making a if they're making a documentary about an individual, you can bet that they're probably on the extreme end of things. Yeah. So I would say that as far as alcoholism or addiction in general, while the host said that there are definitely differences in extreme level that someone can be at. Somebody who smokes crystal meth five times a day, mm-hmm. if I am somebody who just smokes crystal meth once a day, I can't then look at the person who does it five times a day and say, well, I'm all right then. Because if I'm smoking mm-hmm. crystal meth once yeah. a day, I've got problems that I need to deal with by myself. So what's dangerous yeah. is to start to compare yourself to the levels with which other people use because you will always find somebody who does it more than you. Exactly, and that doesn't yeah. mean that your case is okay necessarily. It's just you've got a different level with which to deal with it at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it can, it can always get worse too. You know, it's like, like I said, I can do good so I can do a little bit more. And then throughout time, I can, I will eventually be up there. Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Like All right, Charles. Pretty much, pretty much answer my question. All right, sir. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. It's very dangerous. The slippery slope. Yep. You have some time for me to hit the a couple X files real quick. We can hit a couple X files. I want to know why you didn't read off of the board exactly where Charles was because, from and what else was stated. Because I, you're, you're trying to you're trying to cause trouble, and you, and you know, and you know, you know, the Bay Area is holding their breath, hoping that Steph. Curry, what he had written was Charles from North Carolina, which is where Steph Curry is from. Um, but uh, I'm not reading anything about the the Warriors. <laughs> What's my nickname for them? I don't know. What did I you, call them? I don't know if you have a nickname for the team itself. You've got nicknames for the players. Well, I know Steph Steph Infection Curry, and then I added Curry Goat. But um, oh yeah, it, instead of the Golden State Warriors, they're the Drought Stricken Warriors. Oh uh, yeah, there you go. So that was my nickname for them. Um, listen to this question, and and well, you heard the doozy of last week, but this is this is another one up that alley. This is from uh, Marvin Redwood City. What is the advantage of having a co-gender? This is the way he wrote it, but I'll I'll, I'll add a little bit. He wrote, "What is the advantage of having a co-gender in in a rehab facility?" Well, I guess what he means is, what's the advantage oh, of having a co-ed facility? Sure. Um. I wouldn't use the word advantage. To me, it's an opportunity. When when it's first of all, it's a privilege to be in a co-ed facility um, because you're entrusted with hoping that you have discipline and self-control to stay focused on why you're there. Because you certainly didn't come there to get a wife and get a girlfriend and so on and so forth, and vice versa. But uh, one of the 
beautiful things that I experienced and witnessed up at Swan Lake, even though the women were outnumbered 190 to 60, most of the women were, you know, were older women, and they were able to really help the men, especially the men who had histories of domestic violence and, and mistreating women, help them see where they were going wrong, wrong in the way they were presenting themselves, wrong in the way that they were, um, uh, you know, rationalizing their behavior, their previous behavior. Um, and so it was opportunity for, you know, either sex to use the other to learn uh, valuable information that they wouldn't get otherwise. It's just certain information you can't get from another guy. You know, you can only get it from a female and vice versa. But it t- you have to be responsible. You have to be mature to have these conversations and to get this kind of assistance. And not every group, as I was talking about earlier, how in the TC you have groups that go through together. Not every group is mature enough to do this. And so they lose out on that opportunity of the benefit of being in a co-ed facility where you can utilize the other gender to help you in, in areas where you might have struggled with the other gender. But again, you got to be mature, you got to be responsible, and you got to really uh, want to do it for the right reasons. And unfortunately, it doesn't happen as often as it should and could. So I hope that answered the question of the advantage. And there are, there are very few co facilities left. By the way, in in the county that we're in, I think we're the only the only one that's left. All others are single sex uh, facilities. Um, Dorian from Atlanta, what is the difference between an anger management class and a domestic violence class? Hmm. Well, great differences. However, uh, typically the latter will influence the former, but different focuses. Yes, astute observation. Um, but in anger management, well, let, let's speak to the obvious first. If you're in a domestic violence class, obviously you have committed some act of domestic violence. Um, anger management, as you noted, may play a part in why you're in the domestic violence. Yes. Um, but they have finally started to use the right term when they say anger management because we know every everybody gets angry. All human beings, it's a feeling, experience anger. It's not the anger in and of itself. It's what you do when you're angry, how you conduct yourself, you know, et cetera. Um, Right. The goal is not the absence of anger, rather how to deal with it when it presents itself. Right. And and the goal is not to have the anger cause you to end up in a domestic violence class. <laughs> right. Ultimately. Among other things. Right. So I would surmise, Dorian, that in a domestic violence class, they're dealing more with your relationship as it pertains to direct, directly pertains to your partner 
I say partner because domestic violence can occur in opposite-sex relationships, same-sex relationships, etc. So that's what they would deal with in the domestic violence class. You know, you as a human being and your relationship as it pertains to that other person. And why did it, you know, denigrate into violence? Uh, whereas anger management are, are you, you learn methods and ways and tools to help control your behavior when you're angry. Cut and dried. That's right. Okay. Uh, let's see. Who do we got on the phone? Let's go to Josh from <laughs> Josh from San Francisco, home of the great 49ers and Giants. That's right. Welcome. Uh, well, the the co-host, made, made, he made me read that, by the way. <laughs> so, I know that um, you're not supposed to have a relationship in the first year. It's not a good idea, but I did. And, um, yeah, so it didn't work out because she went back out. And I'm just, I don't know what to do. I can't want to bring her back in, but I don't know. I'm at a real obstacle here. I'm having a hard time with it. So you had a relationship with someone in a treatment setting? No, I mean, I am, but she, you know, wasn't. She's out. She was in recovery as well, though. Okay. And she decided that that wasn't working out for her anymore. So she relapsed? Correct. Okay. <clears throat> I don't know. This, this, it's hard. It, it's hard um, when love is involved, Josh. It's very hard. Yeah. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. It's very hard when love is involved. And uh, I, I think I said this last week. The you know the recovery highway is littered with the remnants of of people who have tried to save other people uh, because of love. Right. Um, and they themselves, you know, may get drawn back into a life that they don't want to while they're trying to save someone else. I think the analogy I used was someone being in a life raft. You're the one that's in the life raft, Josh. And the person that, that you know, your 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 partner, your significant others in the water and you got you you want to save them but you don't want to be yanked into the water yourself. You know, and then Correct. instead of one person being in danger, now two people might drown. So it's how can I help this person without trying to endangering myself? Well you must tread very lightly. You must be very cautious. And if the person is not, if their frame of mind is not ready or in that recovery zone, you have to do what's very difficult, but it's a must. You just have to be hands off. Yeah. Because you can't, you can't put the other person in a headlock and make them do something they're not ready to do at this moment in time. That's kind of what I thought. But there is something you must you must do. You must talk about how you feel about what's going on. Because it obviously hurts. 
and you need to talk about that. Because if you don't, and you stuff it, and just keep it inside to yourself, it's going to eat you up. Yeah. So you got to share it. you got to talk about it. <clears throat> I have been. Good. I mean, I'm heartbroken, so. Yep. But I will. All right, well, thank you. Oh, one more thing, Josh. Hmm. I don't mean to pile on. <laughs> but her behavior, what she's doing, what is she actually doing to you? Well, nothing really. I mean, I, I have been, <clears throat> you know, I talked to my sponsor about it quite a bit. All right, let me uh, let me rephrase it. I'm sorry. In reference to feelings, because you said, you know, it, it hurts, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. What is she, one word, what is she actually doing that hurts you? Well, she's throwing her life away. No, that's what she's doing to herself. But what is she and doing to you that hurts you? I mean, she's going somewhere I can't, you know? Okay, and by her doing that, what is she doing to you? What is she saying? What is her action doing? Um, nothing really. Okay. I mean, like I said, Josh, I've, I've been doing that hands-off what? thing. All right, let I me. Just, I just want to. I got to interrupt you. Just in the interest of time. I once spent maybe an hour with a client on this very subject, trying to get this word out of them. So I'm going. To, just interest of time. I'm going to drop it on you. You then think about it. You don't have to respond. You then think about it. Her actions and what she is doing. Okay, is giving you the big R. You know what the big R is? No idea. Rejection. Yeah. That's what the big R is. That's what that's what her actions are doing and saying. This is more important to me than you. I want to do yeah. this rather than be with you. And my friend, that's why it hurts so much. Yeah, I guess that's true. Make sure you talk about that. Okay. Okay? Thanks. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Big R. It it gets overlooked. It gets passed over. Um, If you noticed when he was was talking, he didn't want to go, didn't even want to touch it. Mm -mm. But let's quickly, do we have time? To get to our, if you're quick with Jimmy, okay. we can get to Jimmy. All right. we got a minute. All right, Jimmy, real quick. Okay, Welcome. real quick. Uh, my name is Jimmy from San Jose, and I had a real quick question. I'm trying to, you know, quit uh, cigarettes, and it's kind of hard. And I just was wondering, how long does it take for the lungs to heal after you stop smoking? Okay, so actually the healing process for the lungs begins immediately after you've stopped smoking. Uh, medically speaking, for your lungs to heal completely, meaning as if you had never smoked a day in your life, if you were to take the x-rays of someone's lungs who've never smoked and yours and you wanted them to be exactly the same, you can't differentiate between the two, 
It takes 20 years. Yeah, I mean, um, that sounds fair, you know. Um, that was pretty much the quick question that I had. Okay. Thank you so much for answering, okay? All right. Thank you, Jimmy. Bye. Bye-bye. 20 years? 20 years for your lungs to appear on an x-ray as if you'd never touched a cigarette in your life. Okay. You say so. That's it. I've got the medical journal to show you if you'd like. No, thanks. <laughs> I think we're at the clock. We are at the clock. Any, You always interrupt me when I get into my clothes, so I'm going to ask you ahead this time. Is there anything you'd like to add before interrupting my sign-off? Yes, uh, I'm predicting the Warriors become the first team in NBA history to blow a 3-0 lead. <laughs> of uh, course. And uh, that's about it. All right. Just well putting, done. Just trying to put the whammy on it. <laughs> Perfect. And on that note, we, again, appreciate everybody who's been listening and following us, all the callers calling in with great questions, all the continued support that we get. We would like to remind you all, if possible, to follow us on our OCG radio show at blogtalkradio.com. We wish everybody a safe week and a happy weekend. We will see you all next Tuesday.
That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Until then, baby, are you gonna let us pull you down and make you cry? Don't you know, don't you know?